You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the All's Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I have an awesome interview with Niaga Leonard from the Catball Langer Conservation Project. Uh, welcome, Niaga. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. No, I was, we were, Angie and I both, when we started talking about this and you contacted us, we were really excited and we didn't know a lot about the cat paw, but now we do. And hopefully we, we can start spreading the message of what's going on with them. But, but first, just kind of give a, can you give us a brief background on, on you and, you know, what got you involved in conservation research? Uh, my background's pretty diverse, actually. Um, I grew up on the West Coast in California, out in Inverness Point Reyes area, right along the National Seashore. And my mom was always really involved in kind of local activities, stopping the shark and ray hunting that was going on in the area. All of the people we were involved with were kind of the founders of a lot of the environmental movements and alternative agriculture movements and alternative architecture and stuff like that. So I kind of grew up surrounded by it. But for my own academic career, I moved a lot and I kind of went all over the place. In my own academic career for undergrad was actually anthropology with a minor in geology. And I went to UC Santa Cruz and they, at the time they did not charge for extra classes. So I took a lot of extra history and astronomy classes and stuff like that. Uh, Did some glacier research up in Alaska, kind of whatever I could get my hands into that was interesting. Then went to China for a while, taught English in China for a while, eventually came back to the States, uh, made wine for a while, about five years. But, as I was making wine, one of the things that was really that we got to do a lot on this particular piece of property was focus a lot on how we raised the grapes because this was an estate vineyard. Mm-hmm. So we shifted everything over to organic. We set up a uh, used cooking oil system, collection system to run the tractors, that sort of a thing. And eventually, I got tired of making wine, but I still really like the environmental side. Of all everything I've done, I've always tried to focus on the environmental side. Mm-hmm. So I quit and went to South America for a while. Uh, worked in Ecuador for a little while with the Andean Spectacled Bears and then helped to build a research station in the Amazon in Peru. And then down in Bolivia was working on a water supply for a small reserve, then organized a deep jungle trek into a kind of remote part of Bolivia. Came back to the States and was looking for work, did some gardening and landscaping for a while, and then eventually got into graduate school at University of Vermont with the Field Naturalist and Ecological Planning Program, which is a, a very, very small, very hands-on graduate program, heavily focused on old-style naturalist approaches and science communication, making sure that there is a, a good flow of information between scientists within different fields and also between scientists and lay people in both directions to make sure that you hmm. can get people to understand what's actually going on and what some of the concerns are and – to get science presented in plain speech and also to get academics and scientists to listen to the average person and understand and pay attention right. and try and make that, that meld between. Uh, I did my graduate work 
in Virginia working on developing a plant monitoring protocol for the National Park Service to track uh, endangered plants that were at the very southern end of their range, which could be used as markers for climate change. Then did some wildlife connectivity work in Vermont, for, and then a brief job in Indonesia that fell through, and then found this position here and came to Vietnam and started working on this project. Right. And so now you're currently living in Vietnam, right? Yes. I've been here for about four years now. Awesome. And are you on, are you based out of Kappa or? Yeah, I live in a, what's basically a small hotel room at the park headquarters in the middle of the island, about 15 kilometers away from the town. Okay. That's awesome. And, it, and it, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you know my background, but I grew up in California too. So it's always f- fun to talk to somebody from, from back home. Um, yeah. haven't been back in, a, in a quite a while, but so yeah, that's awesome. So you're, kind of the project director, right, of the Catbaw Conservation Program. Can you kind of talk about your involvement with them? Yeah. So the the organization was set up initially in November 2000, actually September 2000, by uh, the Alawitter Zoo in Münster, Germany, and ZGAP, another German conservation organization. There's a lot of German-sponsored environmental projects in Vietnam due to the past relationship of East Germany and North Vietnam. They were good allies, and that relationship continued after – both Germany and Vietnam reunified. Mm-hmm. So our kind of uh, oversight and funding sources and kind of long-term vision comes from Germany, from the Münster Zoo. And on the ground here, it's myself and my team here, which is a Vietnamese team. Right. So within country, there isn't really anyone watching over what we're doing other than ourselves. But out of the country, we have some sponsors to keep an eye on things. Uh, my Vietnamese team is four people full-time. But we actually partially employ a total of 33 people, including myself, in this area because we run anti-poaching teams in the villages. We have Langer guards who are people who are allowed by the park and us to live near where the Langers are to keep an eye on them. And we have three teachers that we have employed right now as well to do environmental education within the schools on the island in addition to all the other work we're doing. No, that's that's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, we just love – people in the field that are fighting the fight, right? Like it's just, you know, so many species. And I think Angie and I have a lot really recently talking about how amazed we are, how many people are involved in conservation around the world. Yeah. I think people don't really get that oftentimes. People will look at what people are doing in, in universities and say, oh, they're going on an academic track. And there's a lot of people who have gone through the university programs, but then come out and don't actually want to stay in academia. They want to go and get their hands dirty and do stuff. And there's a much, much uh, larger number of small, locally-based conservation organizations than people realize. Everyone knows the big ones, but people don't realize how many conservation organizations are actually out there really working hard with a very small budget to try and fix things that the problems they see on the ground and get those things dealt with. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's one of the things we do is we try to highlight two organizations a week and yeah, I mean, it's just, we're amazed and we just, Oh my God, we, we love you guys out there. So can you just kind of give uh, the listeners, we, what we presented this week in the, with the cap is there's about 55 to 60, right? And you, you said you had eight bursts this year, but you lost one. Can you just kind of give us an update on where the cat bar is today? Yeah. So the population currently is 55 to 57 animals, so 56 on average. As you mentioned, eight births this year. We lost one. That's kind of standard. Uh, we actually have a pretty low uh, infant mortality rate. Langers usually, as far as I've been able to find out, usually have about a 30% infant mortality rate. We have about a 17% mortality rate, so that's pretty good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, problem is the population is very, very small and it's fragmented. So out of three subpopulations on the island, only two of them are reproducing. And each of those subpopulations, one of them is six bachelor males, uh, one group of eight animals and one group of nine animals. Mm-hmm. So reproducing within that is only two small groups of about 15 animals, including the babies. And then the other area of the island has reproducing animals as about 27 animals. So it's not like it's 55 animals altogether reproducing. It's a much smaller kind of broken up situation. The peak birth time tends to be the end of the dry season before the wet season. Um, Mm. February is our peak birth month. And we think that's the peak birth month in part because it gives the the young a chance to nurse and then get weaned as new vegetation is coming out. So they don't have to deal with all the toxins the plants put out as they're kind of developing the, the internal, the flora and fauna they need in their stomachs to digest the leaves. Also for mothers that birth a little bit later on, they have a lot more access to high quality foods so that can produce more milk and have a better chance in for survival. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had any births in the last few months, but that's normal because it's, kind of the wrong time of year for it. I expect to see births coming up again January, but almost certainly February. And so the uh, one of the things we're, we were excited to talk about too is how Vietnam has said, okay, we're definitely going to throw tons of resources or as much as they can at the cat boss. So the... <laughs> hey, you want to you correct us on that one? <laughs> I'm chuckling a little bit about that. Um, so a lot of the conservation work that gets done in Vietnam is actually done by foreign-sponsored organizations. Uh, the Vietnamese government is very willing to provide a kind of platform to do the work, provide the, the permission to be in the country, provide the kind of verbal support, that sort of a thing, make it a bit easier for living permits and work permits and that, all those kind of basic things. But in terms of actual financial resources and in terms of actual protection, that's kind of a different story. Uh, there... Vietnam is a very heavily populated country pushing to develop as quickly as it can and as much as it possibly can, which means there is a large conflict. It shouldn't be a conflict, but it is a conflict between conservation and development. Vietnam is also the second most corrupt country in Asia. So if you are a developing company and you have a lot of money at your disposal, you can basically purchase the right to do anything you want to in any area. And we see these sorts of things happening all through Vietnam. We're seeing it here on the island. Uh, the Son Tra Peninsula near Da Nang with the Red Shank Duke Langers has had a giant problem with this recently. You see this more and more uh, all through the country. And it, it makes a challenging and difficult uh, situation to do a lot of the work in. Yeah, it's that. I mean, that's fascinating listening to you talk about that because, you know, each country on Earth, I mean, as much as we are becoming more globally conscious, it's, you know, we're in our bubble in the United States and we think, oh, you know, we hear these stories, but people on the ground are experiencing real life. So it's, it's great to to kind of correct the record and say, hey, this is what's going on where, where we are. Like you're in the middle of it. So mm-hmm. that's it's good to hear. And I think it's good for our listeners to hear uh, really what's going on on the, you know, boots yeah. on the ground where you're yeah. at. And, and that's not to say that there aren't in the government that are really being proactive and trying to get things done. It's just that they also face a gigantic challenge. Right. So you make the alliances you can, you people you can, and you keep pushing. One of the things that people oftentimes don't understand about conservation, they think conservation is about the field work, the animals and the plants and going out there and doing the measurements and analyzing the data. And that's really important, but the actual conservation work gets done 
via politicians, via politics, via the economy, with local businesses, things like that. It gets done dealing with people because the people are what we need to have change their behavior. We need to have laws either be made or current laws be enforced. So although the field work is absolutely vital, but that's information you take in that you then use to make an argument to get people to change their behavior. That's such a great point. It's so true too. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things we, uh, we, we've talked about and we want to keep talking about is like the snow leopard trust and how they're working with locals and that you're right. I mean, from the top down, it's just so critical to get, uh, politicians involved, mm-hmm. everybody from, you know, yeah, that's, that's an amazing point. And again, opening my eyes, you know, and, and hopefully a lot of other people's eyes to, to what's the reality out there, you know, and, and that's what we really want to do with, with our podcast. So what's the short term? Prognosis of the cat bot and the long term. So, what do you see for them in the next couple of years, and then, you know, down the road? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a tricky question. Just in terms of make any predictions here, the population as it currently stands is, I would say, it's stable and it is slowly increasing, but it is a slow increase. Uh, you always you're going to have a certain amount of adult mortality per year and a certain amount of births per year. We don't have a good handle on what adult mortality is, but what I'm concerned about is that over since I've been here, we've been having you know, between seven and nine or so births per year, which is really good, but the population has not been increasing tremendously. This is in part because we had a hunting incident in 2015 and lost a lot of animals. People from the next province over came over and killed a bunch of them. But mm. I've been trying to go through all the old data and put it into a format we can actually do some analysis on. So we can try and figure out what some of the changes in the past have been and what the actual changes are in terms of population dynamics and within groups, what animals have actually died and which ones have survived. That said, for the next few years, I expect the population to just continue growing probably at about you know between one and three or four per year. We'll see how that actually mm-hmm. goes. That's made much more challenging because there is a – very, very strong push for big, big, heavy development in the area. Where the Langres are is protected, but one of the groups, one of the producing groups, the one in, in Kodong, the area closest to Katba Town, does not have any room to expand anymore. So it can't, that subgroup can't really get any larger. The one in the sanctuary, this area on the eastern side of the island, has plenty of space to expand into. So that's a relatively safe area. But the so for the short term, it probably doesn't make much – the development doesn't have much of an impact on the land curves. But for the long term, it potentially does because you have to protect the habitat for the animals and you have to protect the future habitat. We're trying to get the population to expand back up into a long-term viable population. Mm-hmm. To do that, they need more space. And if we start building things, taking over the area that is potentially good habitat for them, that poses a long-term problem. We're working with IUCN right now. There's a push in the area to try and turn this into a world heritage site, to expand the Helang Bay World Heritage Site to include Katba and the Katba Archipelago. So we have a lot of support from IUCN on trying to set certain areas kind of off limits for development. But as I mentioned before, if you're a developing company and you have a lot of resources, it's easy to bend and flex laws around in your favor. And we're seeing a lot of that happening right now. Right. Oh, and you know, one of the things I always like to say at the end is how can our listeners help? But is there anything like, since, you know, that's the hot topic right now. Is there anything we, we can do to support you and the IUCN and, and trying to do that? I mean, 
you know, our politicians are, it's a little messed up right now in the United States, but, you know, is there anybody we can push? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, for us, it's difficult because we don't have a U.S.-based 501c3 status. So it's really difficult for people to give us direct support. Um, you know, as much as it's nice to get support for your particular project, I would say really the situations, the problems we face are they're global situations. And the best way to face those oftentimes is locally. It's really easy for listeners and people who are interested in supporting to support something somewhere over there in Africa or in Vietnam or in Indonesia or wherever it might right. be. But I think that really the biggest effects are having people focus on what's going on locally in their backyards, at home, in their local communities, because people will see that and take that as an example of what they can do. And if we have more people doing that sort of a thing, that creates overall a much bigger kind of groundswell for conservation as a mindset, not as a let's give some money occasionally type of approach, but as a way of living. So as much as I would like to have more support for our project specifically, I would encourage people to really focus on what's happening locally and on the kinds of things they wouldn't normally pay attention to. I mean, native plant landscaping, for example, is a good example of something that's easy to do for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are organizations that I very much recommend if they want to do give support to. I think IUCN is a fantastic organization. WCS is doing some great work all over the world, especially here with um, anti-poaching and wildlife trade. Same with traffic. You know, those organizations, I think, are doing some really good work. So if people do want to support, that's a good way of doing that. Uh, another way of doing that is you know, also write letters, write letters. But writing letters and contacting people actually does make a big difference. And raising concerns, whether it's concerns raised to organizations like IUCN saying, you know, I understand that you're the organization that is doing the uh, kind of the analysis and the reviews of World Heritage Sites. We're concerned about what we hear about this area. Can you raise that as an issue? You know, writing to local governments and say, hey, look, we I was just visiting an area. I saw this garbage here. I saw this happening. Can you please do something about it? Those things make a big difference. And in many cases – especially in the case of tourists coming through an area, they make a bigger difference than conservation organizations saying something does because the politicians have all heard what we're going to say. But if it's a tourist saying that or another person that can potentially bring money to the country that supports businesses and things, the politicians get worried about that. No, yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing insight. I'm just like, wow, (laughs) I can listen to you talk all day about that. That's, you're so right about local, you know, thinking of stuff and, you know, one of the things we, Angie and I talk about, like living here in Florida, we have a huge invasive species problem and it's not just the Burmese python. It's, you know, the Cuban tree frog and all, you know, even African bees and things like that, that are here. And, you know, like you said, if, if, you know, planting native plants and things to support our local environment, if everybody does that, if everybody took care of their own little corner of the earth, we would have a healthy planet. Yeah. But as it is right now, obviously we don't and we're using up resources at a, at a critical rate. So no, that's, that's, whew, that's very insightful. That's awesome. Uh, thank you. Uh, so as far as the, the cat bot, I mean, anything you want listeners to know about them? I mean, I know Angie and I tried to do as thorough as we could, but obviously yeah. you live and breathe these guys or, or any other animals that you're working with on cat Island. Uh, well, the cat Langer itself is, it's kind of an interesting animal. It, it's been, its closest relative is in southern China, and they've obviously been separated for quite a long time. The animals here have been isolated on this island for about 12,000 years because that's when the sea level rose for the, during, after the last glaciation uh, ended and flooded everything. 
so there's been kind of an interesting tie-in to the geology and seascape. In the past, these animals would have been spread through the entire region. And as the sea level rose, it turned all these little mountain peaks into small islands, which are too small for animals to live on. So there's a very close relationship between the long-term environmental change and this particular species. And this is something we see replicated all over the world, especially now with this large, very rapid environmental changes we're seeing. So it's kind of a model of what those effects can be. Uh, I think specifically with the other animals here, which is my training people to focus on, animals like Agatma Langer, animals like uh, elephants and cheetahs and you know these big, uh, very pretty kind of poster animals, they're really important to work with. The reason oftentimes is because they act as an umbrella to protect a lot of other things that otherwise not get any recognition. On this island, we have a endemic lizard is actually two endemic lizards we've got endemic lizard the kepa leopard gecko which was recently described in science but there's no real work on it being done at all we have a gigantic number of endemic plants that are found either only in this island or only in this island and the surrounding smaller islands in halong bay 70 uh, percent of the world's limestone sea lake sea cave style things are found right in this area and those are each individual one is a little laboratory of speciation. There is This is one of the few places in the world that captures the full transition from a fully terrestrial karst environment to a fully marine karst environment with all of the intermediary steps all the way down along the way. We have big migratory bird flyway going through here. We have lots of caves, and every cave has different species of snail in there, but no one's going to do anything to conserve snails. But if on something like Cat Belanger, we're able to then use an umbrella and say, look, there's a lot of other things here that need attention that otherwise won't get attention. But because we need to protect a habitat for this animal, we have a little bit of a kind of a buffer that we can use to protect all the other things here. And I think that's something that people need to understand some of this. And people get upset about how much money certain species get. And it's understandable. I mean, elephants get a lot of money compared to a lot of other animals. Right. But an elephant also needs a really big area. So you get to do a lot with that resource if it's applied properly. Yeah, that's another amazing point that, you know, kind of rolls into what I was going to ask you next as far as like, you know, some people saying that we should just let species go extinct, let nature take its course. But when you talk about protecting an umbrella species like the Langer, it's not so much just the Langer, it's everything else in that food web or in that environment. And we also have long-term unforeseen consequences. Look at Mauritius Islands, the dodo went extinct. And now we're finding that some of the big canopy trees are, they're not reproducing. The thought being that as the, the dodo would eat the fruit and the seeds would get processed by its digestive juices, and that was necessary for germination. But that didn't show up until, what, 150, 200 years later. So we have all sorts of long-term effects that we won't know until it's too late. That's such a great point. Oh my God. So in our Vaquita porpoise and river dolphin episode, I talked about, I was at a meeting and one of the scientists there was like, you know, just let things happen. You know, I want to save endangered species, but it's not worth the money. And I'm like, you can't say that. We have to fight for these animals. We have to fight for the environment because we're going to ruin it for us too. We're part of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great insight. Oh my god, this is such a great interview. I'm so excited. Yeah, so I, that, that yeah, aspect, I mean that piece you just brought up about saving it for us is a really important one because for a lot of people that 
look at conservation, they think it's a, you know, a bunch of you know, tree hugging hippies running around out there. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, every single thing that we do in the world that we, that we use comes from the environment. And there's a lot of ancillary benefit. I mean, look at bringing beavers back to an area. People say, Oh my God, it causes flooding. Well, actually, no, it does the opposite of that. Beavers, Mm-hmm. Flow the water flow down, so you have peak flow taking place over a much more drawn out period. You don't have floods as intensely. I mean, yes, beaver dams do sometimes break, and you get small floods like that. But on the whole, it slows down water flow, causes greater groundwater infiltration, over time creates new meadows, which has a wide variety of other species that come in. The create wetlands that filter water for us, which means that we don't have to filter it, which is really expensive to do. It raises the groundwater table up so its water is more accessible for agriculture and things like that. It increases species diversity enormously because it creates these nice shallow pools where there's all kinds of other animals that come in. And wherever we look, diversity is sort of like biodiversity, sort of like money in the bank. That's the resource that evolution and the environment uses to do work to make things happen, to filter water, to filter air, to make fertile soil, to do all these things. If we don't have the biodiversity, then we have to try and do that. And doing that is really, really expensive. So just in terms of the Mm -hmm. economic side, biodiversity and a healthy environment is vital to our own survival. I 100% agree with you. And that's amazing, amazing point. Yeah, such great insight. So one of the the things we, Angie and I have been talking a lot about is ecotourism and the positives and the negatives. Mm-hmm. A lot of the positive brings a lot of money to an area, especially an impoverished region of the world. But on the other hand, we even see it here in Florida, you know, say with the Florida manatees, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, it's exploitation. Yeah. So, you know, I know in your area of the world, that's kind of a concern. So what have you seen and what are some tips for, I guess, for listeners, if they're ever an ecotourist and then also, you know, just kind of what's the, what's the reality mm-hmm. out there? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a joke within conservation that the eco in ecotourism refers to economic and not ecological, because what we end up seeing a lot of the time is someone slapping the eco name or the sustainable name onto just a regular tour operation and not doing anything other than saying, you know, we are now basically greenwashing and we'll go over and look at this stuff, but not actually anything to support it. Um, ecotourism can be done really, really well. And when it's done well, it's an amazing resource. The, to do that, there need to be very strict. There needs to be very strict oversight. There need to be laws and regulations that are enforced. There need to be tour guides and tour operators that really understand and know the local area, and know the impacts of what they're doing and are being responsible. Which is a it's kind of a tricky thing. It's a lot of different things to get done, especially in an area where there's not a lot of resources and a lot of people don't have the best education, and there's a big push to make as much money as you can and also to copycat what everyone else is doing. Uh, In this particular area, for example, we are in a weird situation. We are on an island in a country of 91 million people. And this particular species currently lives all along the coast and only on the coast. So if you want to do primate tourism, which is what Russ Mittermeier and some of the other folks in primate conservation are really focused on as a potential way to save primates, you can't control who has access. If you want to go see the gorillas in Rwanda, you have to go with a particular certain group of people, and there's no other way to get in. So they have very tight control mm. over what happens. Here, there's no way. We, I mean, you can stand out on the water, 
overlook the harbor and you've got in any particular direction you look, you might see between seven and 30 big, big tour boats, like ships, not some boats, but ships mm-hmm. and yeah. 30 to 40 small local folks in their little road run bamboo basket boats and the little small fishing boats and things like that. So people are going everywhere. Of the tour companies on the island, there are 45 or so tour companies on the island, and only two of them are properly, fully registered with the government and doing everything 100% legally. Mm. And those are the ones that are constantly getting the most harassment by all the officials. So it makes a really challenging situation. There's no incentive for people to behave in a responsible manner. Also in this area, only about 5% of visitors actually return back again, which means that it isn't really a return aspect. You know, people might do a review on something like TripAdvisor or something, and someone else might look at that and rethink what they're going to do. But on the whole, that's not that big of an influence. So there isn't a lot of incentive for people to provide a service which brings people back. If it's a bad thing, they say, yeah, forget it. They're not going to come back. Who cares? Mm-hmm. So for visitors coming out, uh, I would recommend they do their research first and find the companies that are actually – Behaving responsibly, which is oftentimes very difficult to find information out on. Definitely check their reviews on things, but read reviews with a critical eye because oftentimes people who are upset write reviews as opposed to people who are happy with what they saw. Um, Talk to the the tour operators and the guides and kind of question them, but see if they actually – what they actually know about the areas, what they say about things, and see if their stories actually make sense. If there are problems, and there's always going to be problems, if there are things that people don't like when they come on an area like this, you know, make a point of talking to the people who run the hotel you're staying in or, the, or to the tour guides or to the tour administration center because all of these areas have a kind of a tour center where there's somebody in charge overseeing the tourism departments. You know, talk to those people and say, I was here and I saw this and I was really upset by it because everyone's very concerned about – Tourism. Some people are concerned about it because they want more tourists because tourists bring in a lot of money per person or have the potential to. It also means they're very concerned about losing tourists. Conservation folks are concerned about tourists because tourists in general have a very large impact. Not always, but in general they do. A very large environmental impact. So having tourists themselves raise particular issues with the tour companies and with the kind of advisory committees in the areas, that has a really, really big impact. But it's difficult. It takes work. It takes work on the part of the travelers. But if people are going out for things yeah. like ecotourism, what you're hoping is those people are being kind of responsible, aware travelers. But it takes it takes work for a trip person to do that. And it's easy to go someplace and go, oh, elephant riding looks like great fun. Oh, look at elephant painting. This is wonderful. And then not know what goes into making that happen and how the animals are treated horribly and trained in, in really atrocious ways so people can ride them or so the elephant learns how to paint a painting or do whatever it's doing. With general ecotourism, going out on hikes and stuff, if you see your guide pick up a snake and stick, stick it in a bag, tell him no, put that back out there, let it go. <laughs> no, stuff like that. No, it's, it's a lot of great points. And um, just your insight is is just really amazing and inspirational to be honest with you. So yeah, I know you're busy and you know, you, I, I don't want to keep you more uh, than, I, than we have to, but anything, you know, we should know more about your project or what you're specifically doing. I know we talked a little bit about how we can support just nature in general, IUCN, but any parting advice or, or things you'd like to say? I would suggest that people 
when they're interested in nature and conservation and things, and not only do the fo focus locally thing, but really look into what's going on. You know, think about policies in your home country. Think about the the effects of political and economic decisions that are being made. You know, look at the Senate races going on. Look at the people who are being elected into Senate and what that says about the changes in the U.S., for example, with um. And look at Trump trying to remove the protections from Bear Ears National the National Monument yeah. and the Staircase Escalante in, in Utah. The political decisions and the economic decisions we make have a very, very strong long-term effect that can have either very positive or very negative consequences. If people are interested specifically in certain kinds of animals or donations to things, I very much recommend education as one of the most important and most effective long-term both conservation and health and equality measurements you can take shows it's a long-term investment though. I recommend people look at a lot of the other species that are not so well known. There are so many incredibly endangered species and imperiled areas of the world. But what you end up hearing about all the time are the same basically 10 or 15 animals and areas. You know, branch out, look at more things. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on out there. A lot of really interesting animals and, and plants. People overlook plants all the time. People overlook the importance of particular kinds of insects and things too. People hardly pay attention at all to fish. Look around at a, a, a deeper thing and have an appreciation for the amount of diversity we have and hopefully have a concern for how quickly that diversity is going away. And people say, you mentioned earlier, by people saying, oh, just let, let nature take its course. Things do go extinct, yes, but in the absence of big catastrophic events like the meteor impact, the KT extinction, or the Permian extinction, or what we're in now, which is the sixth largest extinction based on human activity, I mean, there's a, usually a background rate of extinctions. And some species go extinct, some new ones evolve, and it's kind of an ongoing cycle. The problem now is not that things are going extinct. The problem is how quickly they're going extinct and how quickly the environment is changing. Everything always changes, but the rate at which it does so is absolutely vital. It's a difference driving a car of hitting a brake slowly and coming up to a stop sign as opposed to slamming into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour. You're stopping either way, but one's a lot faster. It has a much bigger, literally, impact and consequences as a result. We are in that same kind of situation. Yeah, it's it's dire. I mean, it's it's not good. And you know, that's the purpose of what we're doing is just education and and you know, I, I can't thank you enough for reaching out to us and giving us the opportunity to not only talk to you and take some of your your time away, but just to cover your species that you're working so hard. You know, and like you said, and the other all the other animals underneath them mm -hmm. that uh wow, you know, you guys out in the field, you're right. I mean, you're inspirational and uh you know, we will do our part and, and try to educate as many people as we can. Niaga Leonard, thank you so much All for right. taking the time to to talk to us and our listeners. And, you know, we will we'll keep fighting the fight for you. And, and, you know, you keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>